Hi, I'm Elizabeth. I'm the first IVF baby in the U.S. My wacky life as the first has given me incredible access to experts, resources, and individual stories that I want to share with you. Welcome to the first podcast. Hello, and welcome to the first podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Carr. I'm the first IVF baby in the United States, and I am talking to you today about PGTP. And I'm very interested in this subject because um, PGTP has recently been in the media a lot. And as a recovering journalist, that's what I like to say about myself, a recovering journalist, I really like to talk about topics that are kind of hot and happening right now. And for me, this kind of stems back to my origin story, you know, born in 1981. And there was a, a storm of media surrounding IVF. And so every time a hot button topic comes up like this that's related to reproduction, I always am kind of, you know, curious to see what people are saying. So I am thrilled to have you both joining me today. So I've got with me Dr. Serena Chen and Steve Shu, who is a founder of Genomic Prediction and just full disclosure, I'm also a patient advocate for genomic prediction. So part of my job is to help explain topics like this, which is right up my alley. So uh, thank you both for joining me. Uh, Serena, why don't you explain who you are and what you do a little bit to us? So I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. I help patients conceive using IVF and other assisted reproductive technologies. I'm the director of reproductive medicine at the Institute for Reproductive Medicine and Science, IRMS and St. Barnabas Medical Center in New Jersey and clinical associate professor at Rutgers, New Jersey and Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical Schools. And I am on the advisory board for genomic prediction. Thank you so much. And Steve, for those of you who are tuning in and don't know Steve, Steve, can you introduce who you are and what you do as well? Sure. Uh, my background is in theoretical physics, which seems like a, a weird thing that is unrelated to IVF and uh, genetic testing. But uh, about 10 years ago, Laurent Tellier, who's Laurent is the CEO of Genomic Prediction, he and I founded the company. Um, I, I, sorry, I, I said, said it slightly wrong. T Laurent and I have known each other for about 10 years, and we've been doing research together in computational genomics for about 10 years. And we founded the company about four years ago. Um, and the connection between theoretical physics and computational genomics and genetic testing um, is that the AI and machine learning algorithms that one uses to analyze, uh, in our case, actually millions of genomes uh, at a time, um, is not that different from the mathematics that we use in physics. And so that, that's the connection is that I got interested in the subject because I realized that uh, there would be a lot more data available. This is 10 years ago. I, there would be a lot more uh, data available in the future, and that has turned out to be true. Wow, it's so interesting. I, I love every time Steve gets on because I just want to nerd out and learn more about what he <laughs> what he pays attention to and learn and, and is talking about. So, um, so Dr. Chen, can you just kind of walk us through for those who don't know what PGTP is? Can you explain it in the simplest terms you can? So PGTP stands for polygenic testing um, or pre-implantation genetic testing dash P for polygenic. 
So we, it's an IVF technology. So basically we stimulate the ovaries. We make a lot of eggs. We pull the eggs out under a minor procedure while you're asleep. We put it together with sperm. We grow embryos in the laboratory. Then we take a small biopsy of the part of the embryo that's going to become the placenta, a few cells, and then we can analyze it with genetics. And most of the time, we're analyzing for just your chromosomes. Um, sometimes we're analyzing for a specific gene um, that might cause a disease in an embryo. Polygenic testing is the newest form where a lot of diseases are caused by multiple genes. Let's say uh, cardiovascular disease or diabetes. It's not caused by just one gene the way sickle cell disease is. And so in order to see if an embryo has a higher or lower risk for multigenic diseases, you have to analyze multiple genes and that's polygenic PGT. And the tricky part is that not just diseases like heart disease and diabetes are analyzed this way, but things like intellect and height can be analyzed this way. And that's where that's why we're here today. Talk about some of those controversies. <laughs> sure. So, um, Steve, I want to have you jump in here. Um, so, you know, we were talking about screening for, you know, single um, single cell abnormalities. So um, that that kind of technology has been around since the 90s. Right. So we've been identifying things like Tay-Sachs. Um, so talk to me about just kind of where we've come since the 90s to now in terms of technology technology, because that's really what has allowed us to look at this bigger picture, right? Right. There, there are two uh, separate threads here. One is the ability to relatively inexpensively genotype even a single cell. So just a few cells from the embryo, one can get the entire DNA sequence uh, of the embryo. Um, the cost for that has gone down tremendously. And that's what really got Laurent and myself into this area of, of research. Um, and because the cost has gone down so much, we now have huge amounts of data available to be analyzed. So in my research group uh, at the Michigan State, uh, that's the university where I'm a professor, at the Michigan State University supercomputer, we have, you know, of order a million, more than a million genomes that we can analyze. And what you can do is you can write uh, computer programs which look for patterns, cases in which a particular variant, a particular uh, uh, different version of the DNA at a particular location is associated statistically with having higher risk of a particular condition. And by analyzing that carefully and analyzing, say, millions of different genetic variants, different locations on the genome, simultaneously, we can build a statistical predictor. That statistical predictor tells you what the risk of an individual is for a particular condition based only on the information that's in their DNA. And to, to give you a very specific example, people are used to the idea that there are certain dangerous mutations for breast cancer, BRCA mutations, which predispose a woman to having a much higher risk uh, of breast cancer. That's been known for some time, and it's more or less uh, commonplace to screen against that. If, if someone has a family history, they know they are BRCA carriers, they could 
um, you know, well before the establishment of genomic prediction, they could screen against the genetic variants to ensure that, for example, they have a baby that does not carry one of the BRCA risk variants. What has changed just in the last four or five years is that we can now identify many more women who are at equally high risk. They're at equally high risk for breast cancer as the BRCA carriers, but they are not BRCA carriers. And the risk that they have is originating from not one or 10 or even hundreds, perhaps a thousand different genetic variants are contributing to the risk that makes that particular individual high risk. And so most of the families actually that have a history, a family history of breast cancer do not carry BRCA. BRCA is very rare. It's maybe few per thousand women, maybe one per thousand, depends on which population group, ethnic group you're in. But we can identify really about 1% or two or 3% of the female population as being equivalently high risk, even though they do not carry any of their BRCA risk variants. So if you think about it, the improvement, just as an improvement of genetic science, we can now identify 10 times as many women who are just walking around, probably without knowing they're high risk for breast cancer, but they're at equally high risk to this population that's been known for a long time, the BRCA population. So now uh, if, we, if we go back to IVF, a family that has a family history of breast cancer, but is BRCA negative, can still look at, let's suppose they have five viable embryos, they can look at those five. And typically what we'll find is maybe one of those embryos is very high risk because this, this family you know, has a predisposition that way, but a couple of them are in the normal range. And so the family can say, hey, we wanna break this connection. We wanna break this connection between our family history and the health of our daughter. We're gonna break it by selecting one of the embryos that is normal risk even though the members of our family tree generally tend to be higher than normal risk. So that, that, that's, I think, a, a, a use case that most people can understand. Yeah, that's, it's, it's so incredible to me because, you know, looking back at this technology, they couldn't even tell when I was born if I was gonna be a boy or a girl and ultrasound was terrible and they weren't sure if I was gonna come out, um, you know, with all my digits, essentially, like that's how bad, you know, our, our, our ultrasound technology was. So now we're talking about like looking at um, genes in embryos um, or gene markers, and it's, it's just astonishing. So Dr. Chen, talk to me about, you know, what is it that people want to know the most about? So when you're talking to um, people that are looking into PGTP, what are the kinds of questions that they have and what's the, you know, the BRAC, BRCA um, is a good use case, but what's another example of like, you know, somebody going through the family planning process and just having questions about what could be in their genes? Well, we're, um, genomic prediction is doing a trial right now. And I think um, that's a good illustration because we have patients going through that process and it is a new technology. Most of my patients are struggling to conceive. They need help, they need IVF in order to have a baby. And their number one priority is, I wanna have a healthy baby. And a lot of times, we um, the first priority is to make sure all the chromosomes are normal. So, because having an extra missing chromosome is the number one cause for having a miscarriage, especially in the first trimester. And if we can, prevent pregnancy loss and prevent miscarriage in this population, we've, we've done 
a huge thing. And, um, and this is a high risk population for that. So that's one of the biggest priorities for the patients. But some people make more than one uh, chromosomally normal embryo. And then we can look at some of these polygenic characteristics, things like risk for heart disease or risk for hyperlipidemia. And you could say, well, you have two normal embryos. How do you decide which one to put in first? That could be one of the criteria. Maybe one embryo is higher risk than another embryo. Um, now, some people um, feel a little uncomfortable with this because they feel like, well, then we're, we're saying, well, um, we're doing genetic selection for things like heart disease and breast cancer. And obviously, so many people in our society with high risk for heart disease and breast cancer, and yet they're really um, valuable members of society. So um, people worry about the implications of choosing, but a lot of times the way we're using it today is really just for couples trying to have a healthy baby and maximize their chance of a healthy pregnancy. So that's how we're using it now, but I'm so glad we're talking about this today because obviously this technology is very powerful and may really have the ability to eliminate a lot of deadly diseases, um, reduce suffering and prevent things, severe diseases before they even happen. And we're talking about possibly even reducing risk for other diseases as well. So I think as a society, we have to decide, you know, I think definitely we've already seen so much good come out of IVF and we're hoping that um, we can do even more. So let's just, you know, set the stage here. Um, and I, I often bring this up because it's, you know, kind of my area of expertise. But when I was born, uh, you know, almost 40 years ago, um, you know, lots of people said this this IVF was playing God and, you know, it was um, designer babies, which, you know, I hate that term <laughs> um, personally. Um, but, you know, looking back and looking at the evolution of the technology, um, as somebody who has kind of had a front seat to all of the techno technological technological developments over the years, right? Being able to screen out some of those genes that basically are are deadly, right? If your uh, embryo has, you know, one particular um, yeah, gene, like spinal that, muscular atrophy, a hundred percent lethal, but only after tremendous suffering. Right. Um, very early in life. Uh, so I think though to be able to tell people ahead of time, you might be at risk for having a child with this and we can prevent you from um, having a child with that severe disease. I think that's uh, enormously powerful. And um, IVF still is only used mostly in the infertile population. But I do think um, the more of these types of innovations we see, it is going to become less expensive, more accessible, and um, become more accepted because it will be kind of like proact being proactive, uh, one way to proactively prevent disease.
Right. And Steve, let's just talk a little bit about the actual um, practicality of this. So, um, you know, in terms of steps, it's not an additional step that somebody that a patient would need to go through, correct, for this kind of testing? Uh, yes, although actually, you know, Serena is probably better to ask about this than me. But um, my understanding is that um, PGTA, which is pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, so that is testing for, for example, an extra copy of chromosome 21, which could lead to Down syndrome or could lead to an unsuccessful pregnancy. That's a very important point. Um, that is already pretty common. I think the statistics that we've seen in the marketplace is that over 50% of IVF cycles in the United States, the parents elect for PGTA. So it's, it's already quite common in the United States. And the molecular pipeline that we designed for genomic prediction takes that same biopsy. So there's no behavior change on the part of the parents. There's no behavior change on the part of the person who takes the biopsy or the laboratory at the IVF clinic. They typically will send us the sample then, and we will test both for PGTA, so testing basically for the chromosome normality, chromosomal normality. But then additionally, we amplify the DNA and we're able to get uh, a, a, basically a whole genome genotype of each embryo. And then we produce a rather elaborate report. And the report actually contains things like individual risks for, I think the number is around 20 now, different uh, really significant disease conditions. Um, and that all that information is just advisory to physicians like uh, Dr. Chen and to the genetic counselors at the clinic and our own genetic counselors at Genomic Prediction. And together with the parents, they make a decision. They may choose to just disregard all this information, just say, hey, you know what? I have a gut feeling about embryo number four. She is the highest risk for uh, heart disease, but it doesn't bother me. And obviously the, the main thing is just an interactive process where the, the parents understand what, what do we now know about the embryos that we didn't know before we did this extra bit of genetic testing. And hopefully it, it allows people to end up in a better place. I think that's a very good point, Steve, is that um, uh, some people, some of my patients will say, you know, I don't want that information because I would not terminate a pregnancy. Um, you know, why would I need that? But this is not about that. It's about empowering yourself with information. We know that it, we have the technology of somebody's at high risk for cardiovascular disease to monitor and reduce their risks if we know that they're already high risk. So um, this could be very powerful information for the parents and for the child in terms of uh, being able to you know, live their healthiest life. The diseases like Tay-Sachs and spinal muscular atrophy, we do need mm -hmm. to know the parents' genes ahead of time. So that type of testing is only done if we know both the person providing the sperm and the person providing the egg carry a disease, um, a mutation that if the the embryo gets both mutations, they could get um, a severe disease. And that's like testing for recessive mutations. And that's called um, PGTM for mutation. So we have all these different kinds of PGT, but the, the, you can see the power of this technology is, is growing astronomically. And, and we are going to be able to test for 
more and more things. And this has happened just in a few years. Yeah, you know, Elizabeth, I, I just want to make the point that, you know, um, Dr. Chen, Serena mentioned that, um, you know, some people might, upon learning something about the fetus during the pregnancy, they might make a very difficult decision. Like, for example, if they find out it's aneuploid and might be a Downs baby, they might make some very difficult decision about how to handle the pregnancy itself. And here we're talking about something, I think, much less emotionally fraught because in many cases, they have more than one viable embryo. May just We always use an example like, oh, five. So suppose they have five viable embryos. They probably aren't going to use all five. So some of them probably are not going to become children. And it's a matter of selecting which one is going to become their child. But they were going to do that anyway. And in the absence of all this genetic information, really all they can do is look at what we call the morphology. They can just look at the shape of the little soccer ball and say, well, this soccer ball looks better than the other soccer ball. So that's going to become my child. So a choice is going to be made in most of these situations, regardless of whether they have a lot of information per embryo or no information, almost no information per embryo. So we, we're not in a sense changing the moral landscape because they're going to make that choice anyway. We're not stopping a pregnancy that's already taken place. We're actually just choosing which of the five embryos is going to be used. And so it, it, we're, it, I think what we're doing is full of ethic. There are ethical issues that ought to be discussed, but I, I feel it's not as heavy a kind of ethical decision as do I want to continue this pregnancy or do I want to terminate this pregnancy? And, and that decision about pregnancies happens really all the time, actually. Sure. And, and going back to, you know, looking at the, the shape of the embryo, you know, that that's pretty much how I got here, right? It was like, yeah. there was one egg and basically regardless of how it looked, there was one <laughs> egg to work with and that's how I'm, I wound up here. I mean, my parents pretty much just kind of hit the lottery and got lucky. Um, but we often have conversations of, you know, I probably could have not had to go through a whole bunch of testing when I was young and have, you know, my brain waves um, monitored and things like that, because they were trying to determine if I truly was healthy. I looked healthy, but they couldn't see, you know, the internal workings of what diseases I might have potentially and things like that. Now, knock on wood, I'm perfectly healthy as far as we know. Um, and, you know, that's great. But I think my parents, especially, you know, talking with them really could have um, had a lot of their fears um, put to rest if they had had more information, um, let alone, you know, working ultrasound that, <laughs> that showed that I had all of my, my digits, um, you know, but so talk to me about um, where some of this firestorm of controversy comes from, because to it, you know, again, from an insider standpoint, this seems like the next logical evolution in technology, right? So for example, with, with IVF, um, you know, then we kind of move to, we have the ability to use donor egg now. It's not just always, you know, from a maternal standpoint. Um, and we have embryo, um, you know, freeze or egg freezing so that people can kind of plan their families a lot earlier, which was never possible when I was, you know, back 40 years ago when I was born. And so, um, you know, talk to me about what are the kinds of things that you hear from patients, Dr. Chen, in terms of like, well, what are the implications of this? Or is it really truly just like, okay, here's the information we have access to. And, you know, what you do with it is you know, where I can kind of counsel you and help you kind of 
analyze the data? So I think that the vast majority of my patients, because they're seeing me, they automatically are, you know, saying um, they're kind of, it's a kind of a, a, a selected group in a way that they believe in the power of medicine and the power of technology to help them. Not everybody does IVF, although these days um, IVF is pretty widely accepted because almost everybody knows somebody in their close circle who's really had um, had their family through IVF. And, um, and we know there's now, you know, millions of babies that have been born since, since you were born. And, um, and the vast majority of them really, really are healthy. And these are to a lot of people who might never have had children at all. So it's very clear the positive impact of this technology. And I think a lot of the controversy comes as scientists are seeing the potential, the huge potential of this technology, and can we, um, you know, we don't really like that term designer baby, but that's where people worry about, are we, are we doing too much? Um, and I think that um, having this dialogue is really important. I think it is important to hear people's fears about designer technology and, um, you know, having access to this technology, if it's only for people who are wealthy, does that create, does that create a greater divide, greater discrimination, things like that? And are we changing? Do we have the power to change human biology, the way we're kind of changing our crops and, you know, our livestock and things like that? So people, I think, it's good to have those concerns and discuss them and talk about them and study them um, in a global community that includes not just scientists and physicians, but also patients, um, ethical leaders, um, you know, the community, because we do all have to decide together, you know, how we use this technology. I think there's enormous potential for good, but it is complicated. It is very powerful. And so we can't take it lightly either. Right. So what, what about the people who think, you know, something like this technology should be banned, which, you know, again, I kind of, yeah, uh, we just saw that in the wall street <laughs> journal, didn't we? Um, we did. That, I thought that seems like a very dismissive and head in the sand way to approach science. And like you said, I, if, I think if the scientists who developed IVF had, um, were treated that way, you might never have been here. Um, and I, so I, I really feel like the more information, the more studies, the better uh, support for research funding. That's one of the issues we face in the United States is that reproduction is very politicized. And so we end up women and children being last when it comes to medical research. And that's, um, you know, that's obviously a disservice, I think, to everybody, because we we need um, women and children to carry on for the future. So that that's that's good for everybody. So I think the more open we can be about dialogue, the more support we can provide for research, um, you know, like Dr. Shu doing this incredible work um, and and discussing it out in the open and supporting it 
a, an open dialogue globally, um, I think that's going to help us make the right decisions so that we can use a lot of this technology for good, you know, to prevent disease, to make people healthier. Right. And you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of where, where my thinking is, um, because wholesale banning something like this, um, you know, I was born in Virginia, um, which is where the first IVF clinic in the US was approved and they had to jump through a whole bunch of hurdles to have it. But I'm, my family is from Massachusetts. And the only reason I wasn't born in Massachusetts is because IVF was illegal at the time in Massachusetts. And so wow. literally if my parents had not found this clinic and been able and had the capacity to travel to a different state and could fly back and forth and, and really, you know, work pretty hard <laughs> to get me here. Um, you know, I literally would not be sitting here with you. And so when, whenever someone, even within the industry kind of says wholesale, like, let's just scrap this, let's ban it, whatever. Um, I always am kind of the first person in the room to say, well, hold on, let's, let's really take a second to understand the technology and the science. Um, and, you know, the thing too, um, and Steve, maybe you can talk a little bit about this is, you know, um, IVF was far less well proven, essentially, than PGTP nowadays, right? Yeah. So um, talk to me about how we looked at sibling pairs to kind of validate what we found. Right. So it's interesting to make a comparison between what was known uh, historically when the first IVF babies were created about what the health consequences would be uh, on them from having been conceived, uh, you know, ex utero. Um, very little was known, right? And in fact, I believe the physicians that were involved in Louise Brown's birth and your birth, they were very worried, right? In fact, I think they've written subsequently that, wow, if, if there had been a serious problem with one of these babies, even by accident, even if it had nothing to do with the IVF process, but just for some other reason, because of mom and dad's genetics or something, the baby had come out, you know, with six fingers or something, people would have just shut down, completely shut down IVF. And literally millions of families in the world today that have a lovely child would never have had that child, right? Without, without the technology going forward. So they were taking big risks at that time, right? Uh, in order to move things forward. But history has shown that it, it's extremely beneficial to humanity that they took those risks, right? Now let's, let's look at the case of polygenic selection, which is what, what we're talking about. Well, first of all, as we said, they're going to make a selection anyway. So if it's, if it's this, you know, uh, standard case where they have say five embryos, they were going to pick one anyway. And so the question is, are they really making on average a worse choice by knowing the genomes of the embryos and having more information than just how good does the shape look? Or are they really likely to make a worse choice? And one way to test that is uh, to look at data. So uh, we have in our uh, data set for analysis, I think something like 50,000 sibling pairs. And these are people who are 60 or 70 years old. They're, they're late in life. So you know there might be some diseases that are still yet to crop up as these people age, but a lot of the common diseases would have started to manifest themselves with these people by that age. 
And so what we've done is very rigorous testing where a particular AI predictor, so say it's an AI predictor for um, type 2 diabetes risk, we can ask the question, when we look at a pair of individuals and say it's two brothers and one of them has diabetes and the other one doesn't, would our predictor have gotten it right? Would our predictor have actually said, yes, it's, it's, it's um, brother one, not brother two that has diabetes. And what we find is actually uh, in the case where one of them is a high, has a high risk score and the other one has a normal range risk score, typically we're right about 80% of the time. And if you add that up across 10 or 20 different diseases, what you see is that on average, you are improving the average health of the baby that of the embryo that gets chosen relative to the average health of the embryos that are in the original set of five. And that's been tested very rigorously statistically by us and now by two other research groups. Uh, one paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I forgot where the other paper was published, maybe in Cell. Um, so they now have, there now have been very rigorous statistical tests showing that you can, on average, get better outcomes by applying this extra information. And so the, the contrast between, oh my God, I hope the baby is not born with two heads, or I hope that I hope that pushing the sperm in this way instead of the normal way didn't do something really drastic to the cell and, and the further uh, future properties of that baby. You know, they had to worry about such things in late the late 70s and early 80s. Um, we're talking about something much, much milder, a selection with more information versus a selection with less information and a selection where the predictors used in the information have been tested on very large data sets. So I feel like almost everyone, I don't know of any scientist who's looked at it and said, I strongly believe you're going to get on average worse outcomes by using this information. I've never met such scientists. Um, of the people that have been co-authors on papers analyzing this, they're now about at least 20 PhD scientists who are co-authors of these, you know, different subsets of these different papers and things like that. And none of them believe that on average, you're doing harm of any kind to the family. How much good you're doing, that's exactly what we're trying to calibrate. You know, are you decreasing the risk of diabetes by 10% or by 7% if you use the index, et cetera, et cetera. So we're down to very technical issues, which people could never have dreamed in 1979 or when was Louise Brown born? Uh, you know, yeah, 78, 78. Yeah. Yeah. people could never have dreamt that they would have that kind of precise statistical characterization of like, oh, the life expectancy of an IVF baby is two years longer than a naturally conceived baby or two years less. They, they were nowhere near those kinds of distinctions. Uh, whereas we're at that kind of distinction. We, we're almost, we haven't published this yet, but you know, we're almost at a point where we could estimate something like using the predictors and conditional on say five embryos to select on you're getting almost an extra year of life expectancy for your kid. You know, results kind of, I'm not saying that's actually the result, but we're, sure. we're close to publishing results that are of that sort, actually. So um, it's just very different. Um, we're in a data-driven world these days. So, and generally we're not going to do anything without, you know, massive data testing before we do it. And people are doing this now with this direct-to-consumer genetic testing. A lot of people are finding out like what their health risk factors are and right. using that information to be able to say, well, this is a better diet for me and that, and I'm going to be healthier doing things this way yeah. rather than this way. So, um, or I should see a doctor and, you know, get my cholesterol monitored, or I should be doing something 
about my dementia risk. And there are things we can do about things like dementia risk and diabetes risk and, and cardiovascular health risk. So um, I think um, my, my bias is definitely more information is better. And, um, you know, so I hope that uh, Steve and, and all of your colleagues will continue this research and that we can support this, um, this kind of endeavor, because I, I, I think that the potential for, for good is, is enormous. And to just, you know, stick our head in the sand doesn't totally make sense, because I do think you can't really ban it. You know, like you could say we're going to ban it, but that means this type of research will then go underground and, um, and there'll be less transparency and less, um, um, less regulatory where, you know, we can make sure that it's safe. If I could, uh, on this issue of, of hypothetically of banning it, um, you know, coming back to the breast cancer example, cause it's a very specific example. So, uh, Serena mentioned the applications of these polygenic scores for adults, which also is imminent. Uh, actually, it's more than imminent. It's already there. So there's a company called Myriad, which you may have heard of. They're the ones who, in back in the old days, discovered and patented the BRCA gene variants. And so they're one of the leading providers of genetic tests to women to determine whether they're at high risk. And there's a standard procedure, standard of care for women who are high risk, who have the BRCA variants, they tend to get, they tend to be prescribed mammograms earlier when they're younger, closer monitoring, et cetera. And that's all standardized now. What people don't realize, because it's just a couple of years old, is Myriad now uses both the monogenic BRCA indications and a polygenic risk score to determine the risk level of women. And so it's actually expanding, as I said, it's expanding out, eventually expand out by about a factor of 10 times more women will be identifiable in the population as, uh, as people who should get early screening and who currently aren't getting early screening. So that's never going to be put back in the bottle. What can you imagine a legislator or the FDA saying, wait a minute, we don't want women just because the woman gets her breast cancer risk, not from one mutation, but from a hundred mutations scattered around her genome, we're not going to allow her to know that she's high risk. That, that would be absurd, right? Right. And in the same way, if you were to ban uh, a company from alerting a potential parent that one of their embryos is high risk for breast cancer because of a hundred polygenic causes instead of one, you would also probably for consistency have to not let them know that even the BRCA variant is present uh, in any particular embryo. So I just can't imagine the clock being rolled back in that way. It just seems completely crazy to me. Now, I'm not saying that some level of regulation is uh, not good. I mean, you know, society should decide which particular traits of the human being should be disclosable during IVF, should not be tested for. I'm fully for a society-wide examination of all the ethics and the philosophy. You know, I'm not even sure, we, we can do cosmetic traits very well. We can tell the eye color, we can tell whether people are gonna have light skin or dark skin. We have predictors for all of these things that we've built, but we don't actually uh, put them in the report because we think cosmetic traits are still on a more ethically shaky ground and not as solid as preventing disease. Um, and so I'm not against regulation, but I think the idea that something could be banned, that this whole thing could be banned is, is kind of crazy. Right. And yeah. it just, it goes back to the, the same kind of, you know, historical context of, 
um, you know, when uh, I remember sitting in rooms and having uh, debates and listening to clinicians argue uh, about how many embryos to put back in terms of IVF, right? When those were the days where we weren't sure, well, what's the risk factor to the parent? What's the risk factor to the potential children? Um, and now, because the industry has kind of discussed it amongst themselves and, and kind of self-regulated, and there are also um, you know, kind of guidelines. regulations and guidelines around these things, that now we're at a point where it, there's no question really. Um, but I remember those days when there were questions like that. And so again, like um, all of this kind of feels like deja vu all over again to me, you know, all these kind of ethical debates and questions. Um, Serena, you were gonna jump in there with something. Well, I always tell this joke that, you know, I'm glad my mom didn't have PGT available when she had me because she would have chosen the tall, quiet <laughs> embryo, not the short, loud one. So, <laughs> so I do think I there there are these are complicated technologies. There are there's potential for good. There is potential for risk, and that's why um, it's it's so good that we're we're having these dialogues. Like I just appreciate you so much, Elizabeth, for bringing this out and, and, and saying, oh my gosh, there was this really controversial thing in Wall Street Journal. We have to talk about it. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is part of where um, my personal crusade is really to make the technology something that people can understand and digest. And so that then they can make the decision for themselves, whether this is, you know, something they want to pursue or not pursue. Um, because I remember the days of explaining even IVF and what it was. And, um, you know, that that to me does not feel far removed from having to explain what screening for single gene mutations or polygenic um, mutations look like. And so that's why, you know, these conversations are so important, because I think um, if you're going through IVF and you're a patient going through it, you're, you know, you're pretty well educated and have understood come to or come to do your own research to understand some of these topics. But somebody who maybe, you know, not even family planning, not even on the radar yet, um, the sooner that they can understand the various options out there, uh, to me, makes it that much easier for them to make an educated decision when Absolutely. it comes time, right? And so that's yeah. that's kind of where all these conversations stem from. Um, before we wrap up and I let you all go because you've spent so much time with me today and I really <laughs> appreciate it. Um, is there anything else that you kind of want to just cover really quickly that you think we did not touch on? Well, I think um, I would like for people to know that one, you know, this the one of the biggest issues we face in reproductive medicine today is actually an access issue in the United States. So we'll hope that um, people would um, support better insurance coverage and and better benefits because this technology is very safe. Millions of healthy babies have been born. And it, um, it, it is the most effective, safe way to, to treat infertility or to help couples that are struggling to, or people that are struggling to conceive, to conceive. So, because we, we really can basically 
help everybody. And the biggest issue right now is, is really access. So yeah, hoping so that true. Um, I, I just want to get the word out there about that. Yep. So true. Yeah. Only 19 states are mandate states still yeah. in the U.S., which is incredible. Steve? I, I wanted to mention one other thing that we didn't discuss, which is that, um, you know, because we were building a molecular biology pipeline that would actually geno fully genotype each embryo and get much more information about each embryo, it turns out, and this is not something we set out to do, but it turns out to have been the case, we ended up being much more accurate in determining the aneuploidy status, in, mm. in determining the chromosomal normality of each embryo. So that was a pre-existing set of tests that existed before we founded our company. But because we set out to do something really hard, which is to fully genotype the embryos, it turned out that the amount of information that we got and then the machine learning using that information allowed us to do aneuploidy testing much more accurately than what's currently available from other providers in the market. And the reason that really impacts uh, families, and this is a result that I think I, I can't say, I shouldn't say too much about it because it's gonna be announced at ASRM. Uh, and it's not, it's not research done by us. It's research done by an independent clinic, but using our technology, comparing it against other aneuploidy tests. The pregnancy rate is significantly higher for families that use our PGTA screen as opposed to the other ones in the industry. And it's very a dramatic, very dramatic enhancement because it's more accurate. It's not that that we're changing the embryos. You just have a better lens. Yes, it's just. This has nothing to do with polygenics. It's just using the RPGTA test versus the others. However, because of the process used, RPGTA test uses much more information to predict the aneuploidy status. And as as you mentioned. Um, aneuploidy is often a cause of miscarriage or pregnancy termination and therefore an unsuccessful pregnancy. Um, yeah. so or lack of implantation of the embryo. So exactly. that's really, really exciting. Exactly. To hear so, about it. So having a false negative where you say an aneuploid embryo is actually okay, you could transfer this one, reduces the success rate at the mm -hmm. clinic. And also having a false positive rate where you actually have a healthy it's an okay embryo, but you call it aneuploid and therefore it's removed from consideration that also lowers the success rate. So when you combine those two effects, you actually get a pretty significant boost in the per cycle uh, success rate. In this clinic, I believe the N was 3000. So 3000 different families, uh, 1000 allocated to our technology, 1000 to another competitor and another, you'll know the names of these companies, but I won't say them. And then a thousand to another uh, PGTA provider. And you'll see in the results a significant increase in the pregnancy rate uh, for families that we're using. Wow. So, you know, I, all this fancy stuff, Lawrence and I got in it to, in this to use all this fancy computational stuff. We had no idea that this would be one of the side benefits. I would have to say if, 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 if we were just to stop now, I would say I'm, I'm extremely proud if we can increase by 10 or 20 or 30% the pregnancy success rate of couples going through IVF, that's enough for me. I would just say like uh, all that's the huge. 10 years of work was enough, right? That's enough, just that one thing, let alone all the polygenic stuff. That's yeah, really I think exciting. I think we both would agree with you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that alone <laughs> is incredible. Yeah, so everyone who's uh, in the industry, who's a professional colleague of uh, Serena's, go to ASRM or at least pay attention to the abstracts <laughs> ASRM because this result will be announced. I think it's I October, wait. right? It's coming right up. Yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah, coming come see soon. me. I'll be there. 
I'll oh, be there. Go so, see Eric. Yeah. Go see Elizabeth. <laughs> I love to talk with people when we're at ASRM. So it's uh, it's always a fun time. And I, I thank you guys so much again uh, for, for chatting with me about this. It's so important that people, um, you know, learn more about this technology and truly understand it. So thank you both so much. And uh, we'll hopefully chat again soon. Always a pleasure. Thank nice you to for meet you. Having me. Yeah.